Thanks for joining us again today on the Real Life Theology Podcast. Hope your week is going great so far. Just to remind everyone, this content is from our 2023 National Gathering that we had in Indianapolis. So if you love this content, you want more, make sure to go and grab your tickets for next year's conference, and we would love to see you join us in person there. In this episode, Jeff Fall talks about navigating the influence of progressive Christianity. Jeff digs deep into some of the progressive narratives that seem to conflict with Christianity today. He urges Christians to recommit to the centrality of Scripture in thinking through how to approach and interpret differing ideas. Ideas. He calls for discernment, balance, and fairness when looking at Jesus' life and teachings. Let's go ahead and check out what Jeff has to say together today. All right, if you came for the uh, session on navigating the influence of progressive Christianity, you came to the right place. And man, we just got a big time head start on that in that main session, didn't we? Fantastic stuff. Truth and lie went swimming one day. They had run into each other walking in the woods by a lake, and lie suggested to Truth that they go for a swim. And Truth thought that that sounded good, so Truth agreed. The agreement was that they would both jump into the water at the same time on the count of three. So they stripped down, and they counted. One, two, three. And Truth dove in, but lie did not. Truth went way down deep, and the water felt good and refreshing, but when Truth came back up to the surface, he realized that Lie had tricked him, and he hadn't jumped in at all. I mean, Lie was nowhere to be seen, and to make matters worse, Lie had stolen Truth's clothes, headed back to town, leaving Truth naked. So Truth had no other choice. He climbed out of the water without clothes, Went back to town looking for Lie so he could get his clothes back. He found Lie in town, and sure enough, Lie was wearing Truth's clothes. People started gathering around as Truth confronted Lie and demanded that Lie give his clothes back. And of course, Lie denied stealing Truth's clothes. And all the people gathered around to watch them argue, and the crowd had to decide what and who to believe. Would they believe the naked Truth? Or would they believe a lie uh, wrapped in truth's clothing? Now, there are various versions of that famous centuries-old legend, and the dilemma is still real today. We're faced with truth and falsehood. And it's often difficult to tell the difference. And when you are a disciple of Jesus or a disciple-maker, the stakes are even higher. So for the next few minutes... I want to talk about something that all of us are going to face and that all of us must consider. That is the pervasive influence of progressive Christianity. Which aspects of it are true? Which are false? All? None? And what exactly is progressive Christianity? And as I say, if you're a disciple or a disciple maker, you're going to encounter aspects of progressive Christianity. Well, if we were to just look up the word progressive in Merriam-Webster Dictionary, we'd get something like this, relating to or characterized by progress, making use of or interested in new ideas, finding, or opportunities, related to or characterized by progression, moving forward, onward, advancing. Who could argue with that? In that sense, all of us want to be progressive. And if you look at the words with opposite meanings, you get words like backward, low, lower, non-progressive, primitive, rude, rudimentary, undeveloped. 
I mean, who wants to be that? Well, those who consider themselves progressive Christians have defined it, and I'd like to see how they define it, because I was always taught that whenever we talk about a subject, we should fairly state an opponent's position in such a way that they would agree with how we articulated what they believe. There's a, a, an organization called the Center for Progressive Christianity, and this is their own definition. Progressive Christianity is an open, intelligent, and collaborative approach to the Christian tradition and the life and teachings of Jesus that creates a pathway into an authentic and relevant religious experience. And then they have eight components of progressive Christianity. I won't share all of them with you, but let me give you a couple of examples. Following the path and leading of Jesus can lead to an experiencing of unity and oneness of life. That's one. Jesus is one of many ways to experience the sacredness and unity of life. Inclusive community for all people, agnostics, skeptics, believers, uh, those of different sexual orientation and different gender identity. Another one of their values, more value in question than in absolutes. Striving to protect, restore the integrity of the earth and a lifelong path of learning. Now, some of that sounds pretty good, but you notice that Jesus is not exclusive. Sexuality is broadly defined. The environment's included, and absolutes are suspect. Now, a lot of progressive-leaning people that you and I might encounter would reject some of this because progressivism is a continuum in their extremes, as there are with most labels and subjects. So for our purposes today, I'm going to give you a little honest, generous, what I think is a fair working definition for the kinds of progressivism that we as disciples and disciple makers are most likely to encounter in our churches. Progressive Christianity is an approach to faith that attempts to question, rethink, interpret, adjust, correct, or change long-held and accepted traditional orthodoxy, spiritual beliefs, biblical doctrines, and practices to align with current thought, culture, and opinion, and perceived relevance, while still professing to be followers of Jesus. So it's sort of a contemporary, that was then, this is now, a trajectory or an arc theology, something that's involving, nothing uh, evolving, nothing like uh, Jeremiah's ancient paths or, or Jude's once for, faith once for all delivered to the saints or even Jesus' scripture cannot be broken uh, approach. To the progressive, scripture is more of man's progressing understanding of God than it is God's progressive revelation to man. And if you think it isn't coming, to a church near you, you have to think again. A few years ago, in an article in Christianity Today, a guy named Tim Stafford wrote of a preacher and a teacher named Stephen Belinsky. He said that Stephen Belinsky uh, taught classes, and he would, he would start each one of his classes with a jar full of beans. And he would ask all the students in his class to guess how many beans are in the jar. And then he would write down on a big pad of paper their estimates as to how many beans were in the jar. Then next to those estimates, he helped them make another list. And this other list was just a list of their favorite songs. When both of those lists were complete, he would reveal the actual number of beans in the jar. The whole class would look over their estimates to see which one was the closest to being the exact 
number of beans in the jar. And then Belinsky would turn to their list of favorite songs. And he would say, which one of these is the closest to being right? And of course, the students would protest, well, there's no right answer. A person's favorite song is just a matter of taste. And Belinsky, who holds a PhD in philosophy from Notre Dame, asks, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like choosing the number of actual beans in the jar, or is it more like choosing your favorite song? And always, Belinsky said, from old as well as young, he gets the same answer. Choosing your faith is more like choosing your favorite song. He said, when Belinsky told me that, it took my breath away. G.K. Chesterton once said, the time will come when fires will be kindled to testify that two plus two equals four. And swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in the summertime. The sheer magnitude of the thinking shift in our own fellowship is sometimes overwhelming. Because believers are being asked to rethink and remap massive chunks of formerly marked and settled territory. The boundary stones of our fathers are being moved for better or for worse. And many of our predecessors and older leaders and often our peers feel disrespected and belittled and out of touch. And the entire evangelical world is in flux. This is a radically changing landscape that we as disciples and disciple makers must navigate. So what I want to do here as we begin is just throw out some common indicators of progressivism that maybe help us to identify it. The first one is a subtle undermining of the nature of Scripture and its authority. A subtle undermining of the nature of Scripture and its authority. Let me give you an example from that. Um, Brian McLaren is an author who often does this. He says, I'm recommending we read the Bible as an inspired library. This inspired library preserves, presents, and inspires an ongoing and rigorous conversation with and about God, a living and vital civil argument into which we're all invited and through which God is revealed. Scripture faithfully reveals the evolution, here's his definition, the evolution of our ancestors' best attempts to communicate their successive best understandings of God. As human capacity grows to conceive of a higher and wiser view of God, Each new vision is faithfully preserved in Scripture like fossils in layers of sediment. So we're we're back to saying that the Bible is man's progressive understanding of God rather than God's progressive revelation to man. This one comes from uh, Rob Bell on the Oprah Winfrey Show. He said, I think culture's already there. The church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense when you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and co-workers and neighbors, and they love each other, and they just want to go through life with someone. He writes further, Biblical archaeologists are about as certain as you can be about these things, that the conquest of Canaan, as the Bible describes, did not happen. And on and on he goes. So a subtle undermining, and sometimes not so subtle, of the nature of Scripture and, and its authority. The second is the promotion and celebration of doubt. Often in our culture, in progressive Christianity, you'll see the celebration and the promotion of doubt. 
Now, we all know that doubt can be a good thing and a helpful thing sometimes if we work through those doubts. John the Baptist, Jesus said he was the greatest man to ever uh, open the womb. And he had his moments of doubt. He'd spend his ministry saying, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This is he who comes after me, of whom I am said I'm not worthy to unloose his shoelace. And he found himself in prison. And he starts asking the question uh, of Jesus, Are you the one? He spent his whole life in ministry saying, you're the one, you're the one. And now in this moment of darkness, he forgets in the darkness what he learned in the light. And he's asking questions, but he works through the doubt. And Jesus still called him the greatest man who ever lived. There's room for doubt. But when we start encouraging and promoting doubt and celebrating doubt, you're very likely on the path to progressivism. Here's a third one. An unhealthy focus and even delight in the failures of Christians highlighting the most egregious examples as if they were the norm. So you'll take a a caricature like um, Westboro Baptist Church or a crazy preacher like Greg Locke, and you'll make it seem as if all Christians are like those people and that all Christians behave that way. And so you focus and even delight on the failure of Christians and highlight the worst examples as if they were The norm happens often in progressive circles. uh, The next one, piling on bitterness for fundamentalist upbringing and exaggerating the damage with a public, even evangelistic fervor. Let me just tell you about how bad it was when I was raised in fundamentalist circles and then another person coming along so I can top that story. And so you just pile on the bitterness for any kind of fundamentalist upbringing and exaggerate the damage with almost an evangelistic uh, fervor. Along with that, an air of arrogance and elitism toward people whom they deem unenlightened. Progressives almost always take their cues from the culture, making a biblical truth align with culture instead of the other way around. There is often a willingness to throw out an entire body of work and reality based on areas of disagreement and wrongdoing. I found this one thing wrong that this person does, so I'm going to throw out everything else good that they've ever done. There's a habit of ignoring sound hermeneutics and context, all the while accusing their opponents of that very thing. There is a proficiency at spin, uh, whataboutism, Default response to confrontation, instead of answering the confrontation, you say, well, what about, and point the finger back at the other person. Uh, Shibboleths are enforced. Certain litmus tests are sometimes unspoken, but they must be passed for acceptance. There's intolerance towards any dissent. Uh, Reductionist arguments are used. And there is uh, what C.S. Lewis called uh, chronological snobbery. And he defines chronological snobbery as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever's gone out of date is on that count discredited. Now, I was thinking about this the other day. I I live here in Indiana. I live uh, in Mooresville, just uh, southwest of the city of Indianapolis here. And if you go a little bit further down the road from me, there's a town called Trafalgar. And in Trafalgar, Indiana, at one time, there was a couple who drove their Model T uh, all the way to California. They did this a hundred years ago. Their names were Iliff and Alma Mitchell. They were joined by Iliff's father and sister, and on October 13th, 
1922, they determined to drive from Indiana so that they could winter in the temperate climate of the San Bernardino Valley. They'd cross the Mississippi River on a ferry. They would endure the endless horizon of the Great Plains. They would brave the peaks of the Rocky Mountains before they reached Southern California. The trip was long and slow and hard, but they made it, and they documented every uh, mile of the 19-day excursion with photographs and descriptions. They got a $10 speeding ticket on that trip. The, the, top, the, the top speed of their vehicle was 35 miles an hour, and that $10 speeding ticket made up one-eighth of their budget for the trip. The story is legendary in their family, the Mitchell family, and fascinated their grandson. His name's Craig Mitchell. He said that, that, that was 19 days of hard driving to get out there, and nobody in their right mind would get in a Model T, drive on dirt roads for 19 days unless they really wanted to get there. And he said, this is teaching me so much about my grandparents. And so he decided that 100 years to the day, he and his wife Kathy would follow in the grandparents' footsteps across the United States. And so they left on the same day, October 13th, in 2022. They left from the same Trafalgar farm that served as the starting point for the grandparents. They traced the route uh, toward Redlands, California, staying as close to the same path that the grandparents made as uh, possible. And the reason they were able to do that is because of the information passed down by their grandparents from the original trip. And they're going to use social media to record their own travels so that future generations can relive it as well. Now, they're going to do it with GPS, climate-controlled, 75 miles an hour on a paved interstate with a concert-quality sound system, a self-driving car. Does that, does that lessen the magnitude of what his grandparents did? Is it really possible that our immediate predecessors were so blind and foolish and that we're suddenly so wise? Is, is it reasonable to believe that we have discovered so much new truth in the last 20 or 30 years? Should the, should the voices of, the, of these new thinkers be given greater weight than those of our veteran elders? Are, are we to understand everything that is presently celebrated in our church's momentum, power, and value has come from a movement and a plea that was allegedly so horribly sectarian and divisive by nature and so off base in its earlier conclusions and values, but now is miraculously realigned with truth and power and beauty. Now, some of it may be taking our own medicine, not to mention there are some elements of truth in some of this. But how do we respond to this as disciples and disciple makers? What, what would be a healthy disciple, disciple-maker response to this progressive uh, pendulum. Uh, one day I was a little bit frustrated. and I'd, I'd spent a little bit too much time on Twitter. I'm not a big social media guy, but I do have a Twitter account. And after perusing the theological statements and scuffles on social media, I sat down and I wrote these words that I'm about to read to you in frustration, and I entitled them, The Gospel according to Twitter. Help me get this straight. For 2,000 years, we got it all wrong. Traditional churches are clueless bastions of abuse, greed, and legalism. All mega churches are evil. Lived experience is everything. White Christians are all deeply and utterly racist. Distinct calls to Christian masculinity are unnecessary and toxic. The entire purity culture was a self-righteous, demeaning mistake. All complementarians have evil motives and bad hermeneutics, and consequently, they'll always bear bad fruit. 
Christian modesty has nothing to do with apparel except in regard to wealth, and we have no responsibility in not causing others to, to stumble. Spouses should never feel any obligation to their partner's sexual needs. The Billy Graham rule is utterly stupid. The evil patriarchy is the root of all evil. Formerly admired conservative Christian leaders are bigots and power mongers and always have been. All young earth believers are ignorant and uninformed. Those who are not progressive are unenlightened and are to be treated with contempt or at best ignored. And by the way, you don't know theology at all if you haven't read from every single ethnicity of author. Those who retain openness to capital punishment or the concept of just war are not really pro-life. Abortion's not good, but it's not that bad. People who vigorously oppose abortion are zealots. If you're pro-life, you have to be cradled to grave, but by their definition... Homosexuality and transgenderism are a matter of preference and opinion and not a matter of great concern, and everybody knows that the sin of Sodom was merely inhospitality. Patriotism is never appropriate. Believers should stay out of politics unless it's for progressive causes, and Christians should have no voice in the culture wars unless we are affirming them. The kingdom on earth is the main thing. Future salvation and reward is not what it's about. The doctrine of atonement is divine child abuse. The gospels override the epistles. Paul was a bigot. Doubt is something to be encouraged and celebrated, and deconstruction is mostly good. It's all out there every single day, and it's taking over an entire generation, and it's taking over churches and ministries. So we have to be at least be aware and stay informed about some of the issues. But even as we do, I'm suggesting that we also take note of some of the good intentions of some progressivism. David Young, who spoke uh, uh, earlier uh, today, has written a fantastic book on this called uh, Grand, The Grand Illusion. You can pick a copy of it up uh, downstairs. And he points out that many people travel this progressive road because they want to make the gospel more palatable to unbelievers. In other words, they believe when they're taking this progressive uh, road that they are creating an on-ramp for the gospel. And he says, in reality, what they don't realize is they're creating off-ramps for the gospel and deconstruction. But we should take note of the good intentions of some progressivism and understand the appeal of progressivism and even hear the vestiges of truth in progressivism because sometimes there are some valid points. And be aware of your own bias as you do this. And another thing is don't, don't label every change or thing you don't like as progressivism. When people are decluttering their faith, that's not the same as deconstruction. And by the way, calling somebody woke, it's not an argument. But what we have to do is not just label everything we don't like, everything we don't agree with as progressivism, but all of us need to recommit to the centrality of Scripture and take every thought captive. Because here's the truth. You are God-made and Scripture is God-breathed. I, I, I tell that to our people all the time. You are God-made and Scripture is God-breathed. Now, one of the things that can help you in this is to find some good resources. And one of the things I love about Renew is the, the, the fine resources that they uh, provide. And I like to say it like this, and I've, I've, it's not original with me, uh, but I think Renew is walking a path that avoids the ditches of toxic legalism on one side and dangerous progressivism on the other. And so you need to find some good resources, and renew.org um, does provide many of those resources. 
It also helps to know the names of some progressive thought leaders so that when you're discipling somebody or when you encounter somebody in your church and you see what they're reading, you'll understand the path that they might be going down because you know who's discipling them through reading and and who's influencing them. Don't be naive. Uh, Practice kindness but not compromise. Uh, Build relationships with people who are susceptible to progressive uh, influence. What I started doing with our entire church staff, especially the younger church staff, is I would meet with them once a week, and I, I would say, any subject you want to bring up. Tell me anything you're thinking. Tell me what you don't like. Um, You just need to give me the opportunity to do the same thing and to respond. And so for months, I met with our younger staff so that we could talk through some of the issues that that they were wrestling with. At the same time, you guard your own mind and heart. As you're leaning over to help, uh, you make sure that you don't fall in. Uh, uh, Another thing that I suggest, don't buy the pork barrel package without the line item veto. There are things that you can reject. There are things that you can receive. You don't have to buy the pork barrel package without the line item veto. And then choose your battles. Um, you, you don't have to accept the invitation to every fight that you're invited to. So, so let me just say this. I would not join the chorus of voices that claim that Christians should never engage in any culture wars. Because sometimes that's just a way to muzzle believers and remove them from being salt and light in the conversation. And, and I notice that Christians who say Christians shouldn't engage usually do so themselves when it fits their ideology. Some connection to our culture wars are, are unavoidable. I mean, when Paul and Silas cast demons out of a slave girl and ruined the profitability for her handlers, it was a fight against a human trafficking culture. When the gospel caused the burning of witchcraft and magic arts books, it was perceived as an attack on their culture. When Paul preached against idolatry, elevated the one true God, it threatened the business of the silversmiths who made idols. It was against their economic culture. When Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he was challenging the existing religious culture. When he called himself king, he went against the Roman political culture. When he ate with sinners and he welcomed the marginalized, he got crossways with the Jewish culture. The same is true for us. If we hear King Jesus that life doesn't consist of possessions, we counter a culture of materialism. If we follow Jesus in caring for the poor and the rejected, we clash with a culture of selfishness and pride. If we speak up like King Jesus for children and the value of life, we threaten the culture of death. And on and on the list goes. Jude gets it. He said, You must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering. Rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment. Show mercy to still others, but do it with great caution hating sin that contaminates lives. And I I love what David Young said. We are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. Martin Luther's words are still true. If I profess with the loudest voice and the clearest exposition, every portion of truth, uh, the truth of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I'm not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ, Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on the battlefield besides is merely flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. You know, we used to say, uh, don't believe everything that you hear. Remember that? And then we said, just because somebody puts it in print doesn't make it true. And after, after that, we said, just because you found it on the Internet doesn't mean that you can trust it. And now we say... Seeing is not necessarily believing. Have the photos been doctored? Is that a computer-created image that I'm looking at? 
And I don't think in my lifetime I have ever seen such an obvious culture of spin and deceit. That's especially true in the political arena. Lies and distortion and untruth are an expected part of the game in the political landscape. In fact, spin and twist is not only accepted, but admired as strategy and necessary political posturing. Read my lips, no new taxes. I did not have a relationship with that woman. That depends on what is, is. We have found weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. I took the initiative in creating the internet. A, a, a comedian and a politician are sitting together on an airplane, and the politician says, oh, you're a comedian, eh? Tell me a joke. And the comedian says, oh, you're a politician, eh? Tell me a lie. I mean, it's accepted. Lies are not limited, though, to politicians and fishermen. The supposedly unassailable disciplines and bastions and guardians of truth are susceptible to distortion. Think about it. History is not exempt from lies. There are two very different accounts about Thomas Jefferson. Was he the third president of the United States, principal author of the Declaration of Independence, one of the most influential founding fathers? Or was he a father of children with one of his slaves after he had publicly denounced what he called the immorality of mixed-race unions? Or was he both? How are we supposed to know the truth? It's not just history. Christopher Columbus, the great discoverer of the New World in 1492, or celebrating on Columbus Day each year, or an imperialist pig who was responsible for the death of millions of Native Americans repulsive to us in this enlightened society. How can I discern what's true? Which version of history is true? The one taught in the old textbooks of yesteryear, or the one taught in the new updated and revised editions? The history that was previously written, or history rewritten? Are these just new facts brought to light or old propaganda methods rebirth? Is history the helpless victim of political correctness and current agenda and revisionist whims, or is it the beneficiary of current discovery and scholarship, or is it both? Did some of us just live in an era that turned a blind eye to the failures of our heroes and conveniently overlooked even blatant indiscretion? Or do we now live in a culture where every flaw and shortcoming is magnified under the white-hot light of critical scrutiny and conjecture Or is it both? How am I supposed to decide? Please understand, I I do not wish to even insinuate a position on these instances. But I do wish to illustrate the dilemma that we face in discerning truth. History is not exempt from lies. Science, not exempt from inaccuracy. Regularly subverted to support agendas. Why do we use words like bias or hoaxes when it comes to science? Isn't science an arena that deals in cold hard facts and reason? I'm not informed enough to know conclusively, but how many retractions have we read where discoveries and accepted science have been renounced or disproven as fraudulent? History, science, families, closest human unit, not exempt from lies. We, we talk about family secrets and skeletons in the closet. There are people who have lived almost their entire lives believing something about their family or one of their family members only to find out later in life that they've been deceived. And some of the most closely guarded, elaborate cover-ups are within family. Courtrooms not exempt from a lie. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet perhaps more lies are told in courtrooms than anywhere else on earth. Religion's not exempt from lies. Church scandals, dirty secrets, false doctrines, sweeping stuff under the rug, wrong motivations, power plays... Church history and today's headlines are littered with evidence of lying and deceit in the name of God. Who can I trust? What should I believe? Who's right? What's true? What's not? 
business and finance, not exempt. Why do we need language and measures like truth and lending or full disclosure or fine print or disclaimers? We could keep going, couldn't we? There are deceptions in the field of education and medicine and psychology and any other discipline you might encounter. So what do we do? What I'd like to do in the, in the moments that remain is to give you some truth detectors. This is a, really, this could be a template for discipleship. But these are ways to help determine uh, truth. And of course, we believe that truth is in Jesus, right? So that's where we're going to go. So the first truth detector is this, what Jesus said. Does it fit his words? That ought to be a no-brainer. If truth is in Jesus, if he was born to tell the truth, if he said, I am the truth, then certainly his words are a trustworthy source of truth. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. He said, my words are spirit and life. He said, we're not to be ashamed of his words. He said, we'd be judged by his words. Why? Because they're the acid test of truth. If a claim contradicts Jesus' words in their context. It simply is not true. Thy word is truth. That's why he's the word. Following Jesus is a relationship, but it is a relationship that includes propositional truth. So we start with, what did Jesus say? Does it fit his words? And then we go to who Jesus is. Does it fit his character? You know, I'm convinced that had I had the opportunity to walk on the earth the same time as Jesus if I would have been able to look him in the eye, even when he wasn't speaking any words, that I would have understood there was something entirely unique and different about this man. His character and his essence. We also know who he was. He was the Son of God. He's the Messiah. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One that would take away the sins of the world. And so when we want to determine truth, we not only look at what Jesus said, we look at who Jesus is. Does it fit uh, his character? When I, when I met my wife, Val, I learned some facts about her pretty quickly. I knew she was from a Kenworthy family. I knew that she had just turned 19. I knew she went to Ball State University. I knew she was intelligent. I knew she got good grades. I knew she liked horses. I knew she had brown hair, brown eyes, and drove a brown Mustang. I knew she was beautiful and sweet. I knew she was from Mooresville, Indiana. I knew that our families had crossed paths years before in Mishawaka, Indiana, and that we had played together briefly when we were both toddlers. And I knew I was toast, hopelessly smitten. But I didn't really know her, not like I do after 39 years of living and loving and fighting and laughing, Uh, not like I do four houses later and four decades of ministry later and three children and nine grandchildren later, not like I do after enjoying the sunlight and facing the trials and the seasons of life with her. I know her more deeply than just intellectual facts. I know who she really is now, and I love her even more deeply. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you know not just his words, but the more you learn his essence and his character, and life is judged by his standard. The third one is what Jesus did. Does it fit his behavior? And that's the whole basis for the WWJD question, but it, it's just one, of the, one piece of the truth puzzle. He went around teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. He ate with tax collectors and and sinners. He spent time in prayer and fasting. He mentored his closest followers. His life gives us glimpses of the truth that he embodied. So we're looking not only at what he said and who he was, 
but what he did. But that's not all. There's one more thing. We look at what and who Jesus sanctioned. Does it fit his endorsement? Jesus quoted and endorsed the veracity and the authority of the Old Testament. He validated Old Testament writings. He said that the Scripture could not be broken. He often prefaced his statements with the words, It is written. He referred to the Law and the Prophets in their entirety as being trustworthy, but he also commended as truth that which his apostles would record by the Holy Spirit. You remember when he said in Matthew 16 to his apostles, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. It is not enough to live life in the red letters. It is not enough to live life in the red letters if we fail to acknowledge that those red letters endorsed the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I think one of the greatest errors in progressivism today is the concentration on Jesus' teaching to the exclusion of the rest of the Scripture that he endorsed. One leader in the progressive wing of Restoration Movement churches recently wrote these words, What the Bible does is it tells me about Jesus. And I don't read Jesus through Paul. I read Paul through Jesus. And I think our churches are getting this, that we no longer read all the Bible as equal. Now we see that everything that Paul said, he is a fellow student with us. Let's read it through Jesus. Now that sounds pretty reasonable on the surface, but not when it's used as reductionist agenda. Not when it muzzles doctrinal imperative. Not when it minimizes the apostles' teaching. Not when it becomes a weapon of specificity. It invites relativism and speculation, and it actually leaves out the teaching of Jesus. It promotes another agenda. It is a reductionist approach. So so let me say it this way. There's great peril in presenting the Christ of the Gospels while ignoring the Christ of the epistles. The Christ on earth without the Christ in heaven. The incarnate Christ apart from the pre-incarnate Christ. And the human Christ minus the divine Christ. The bridegroom without his bride. That neither do I condemn you, Jesus, with, without the go and sin no more, Jesus. The, I came to bring Jesus, a peace, Jesus, without the I came to bring a sword, Jesus. The friend of sinners, Jesus, without the sinners need a physician, Jesus. Jesus, the justifier, without the judge, Jesus. And what this calls for is discernment and balance and fairness. One time, Jesus said to the Pharisees, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Did they know the Scriptures? Well, yes, they knew the Scriptures. If anybody knew the Scriptures, it was the Pharisees. But because of their misuse and misapplication, Jesus said, You don't know the Scriptures. He knew the context and the balance and the tension of Scripture perfectly, and it became his main resource in dealing with his cloak of humanity. There is absolute truth, and you can know it. The truth is Jesus, his word, his character, his actions, and the teachings he authorized through Scripture. And if something doesn't align with that, it simply isn't true. I like what Kevin DeYoung said. I would give my life for an exclamation point but I won't give my life for a question mark. And he quotes G.K. Chesterton, that hard truth may make walls, 
but they are the walls, he says, of a playground. He puts it this way, we might fancy some children playing on the flat grassy top of some tall island in the sea, and as long as there was a wall around the cliff's edge, they could fling themselves into every frantic game and make the place the noisiest of nurseries. But the walls were knocked down, leaving the naked peril of the precipice. And the children didn't fall over. But when their friends returned to them, they were all huddled in terror in the center of the island, and their song had ceased. Walls of truth are our friends, not our enemies. And he uses the metaphor of fences to describe the way people think. Some people approach an old fence thinking, we must tear this down. It's no longer useful. There's no purpose for it. But others ask, what was the purpose of this fence before we go tearing it down? I think that's why John Stott said, life is a pilgrimage of learning. It is a voyage of discovery in which our mistaken views are corrected. Our distorted notions are adjusted, our shallow opinions deepened, and some of our vast ignorance diminished. Uh, When I was a kid, uh, growing up as a preacher's son, um, my dad had uh, stationery, and there was a statement on the bottom of every piece of stationery, and this is what it said. It said, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, and from the ignorance that knows no truth, and from the laziness that is content with half-truth, O God of truth, deliver us. There's got to be a straight edge somewhere. At the end of uh, David Young's book, Grand Illusion, uh, he talks about this tension, and he asks this question. Will we define the Christian faith using the Bible as our source of authority, complemented by Christianity's riches, teachers, the great creeds of the faith, and the witness of the worldwide church, Or will we submit the Christian faith to our own sentiments, our own flawed reason, and the passions of our ever-changing experiences? This is the critical choice. You can follow the teachings of the Bible given by the prophets and the apostles who actually lived with Jesus, or you can follow your own sentiments constantly being fashioned by American myths of progress and political interests. I uh, had the privilege of going to college in Cincinnati, and one of my fellow students was... uh, the singer-songwriter, uh, the, the late Rich Mullins. And he had a, a song that he often sang about truth. And the lyrics went something like this. I'm not making it, it is making me. And I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it, no, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. So what we should be looking for is the absolute insistence that what we believe is based on revelation from God, knowing that Scripture is God-breathed, not merely community-formed, and as such it cannot be adapted or modified to meet the ever-shifting demands of our culture. Scripture is God's progressive revelation to man, not man's progressive understanding of God, and a reaffirmation of biblical authority is in order Being called a people of the book was not a bad thing. Along with that, a fair and responsible balanced use of Scripture, a healthy hermeneutic from the whole counsel of God that refuses to play fast and reckless games with the text, and one that respects the context, resisting the temptation of hijacking the words and creating spin for our own agendas, and cultivating a a tribal environment where personal pride, gain, and preference are sacrificed for the overriding truth, beauty, and glory of God. And it's only then 
that we can confidently address the issues of our days and become disciples and help people become as disciples. I like, uh, I like the story of an old man. He's walking down the street. He's got the big placard in his hand uh, asking people to repent and telling them that what they're doing is going to kill them. Finally, somebody came up to him and said, Oh man, why do you keep doing this? You are not going to change anyone. He said, I know that. I'm not doing it to change them. I'm doing it so they won't change me. Thanks again for joining our podcast this week. Again, we just remind you, if you like this content, you want to hear more, we just invite you to come back next week. We'd love for you to be a part of our podcast each week and keep up with what is going on here at Renew.org. And also, we just encourage you to grab your tickets for the 2023 National Gathering where there's going to be a lot of great content just like this that you'll be able to see and check out and be a part of in person.